In this world, we are surrounded by beauty, and yet most people tend to look for beauty in things that arise, when things arise. So tonight, I'd like to talk about the beauty of when things cease. It's the nature of everything to rise and then cease. But we have a a very deeply ingrained habit to pay attention or a, a prejudice to pay attention to that which is arising rather than looking at the ending of things. And that often doesn't give us a balanced idea, view, perception of what life and reality is. So if we're always just looking at the arising, the arising, thought arising, feeling arising, um, sights, new sight, new sound, new car, new iPad, new whatever, you know, new, 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 it's always kind of exciting in that way, but it's self-perpetuating. There's no end to that. It, it keeps going, and there never will be an end to that. That's what we call samsara. But every time there's an arising of something, it's preceded by the cessation and followed by cessation. It's like when we do eating meditation. You know, if you take bites from your alms bowl, if you take bites from your alms bowl, generally it's the first part of the bite which is exciting and it's easy to pay attention to that. It's like, delicious. Or yucky, whatever. You know, but it's the first part of that bite which, which grabs your attention. But that's only a small percentage of the whole bite. And then you chew and chew and it becomes boring. And when something becomes, uh, what is boring? I mean, who's to say what is boring? It just doesn't grab our attention in the same way because it's not as intense. And then uh, automatically, if we're addicted to that arising, arising, we're always looking for the next bite. We're still chewing this bite, maybe halfway through this bite. We're always looking for the next bite. And if we really pay attention to one bite all the way through, chewing, chewing, boring, mushy, When's it going to end? Come on. All right. Finally, swallowing, and it's gone. Cessation. By that time, it's like, yeah, we're good to get. Glad to see it go. But then we get a balanced view of even small things. You know, things arise, but then uh, they go through a process, and, and even this process is just, you know, a constant arising and ceasing. So we can refine that, that, that insight, that, that looking into arising and cessation. Um, either in terms of a bite or an activity or just on a very momentary basis. 
but especially paying attention to the cessation aspect of each moment. You know, we, we see something and then it ceases. We hear something and then it ceases. You know, there's the sound. There's the sound of a word and then it ceases. And when it ceases, then what's left? The cessation of that. The absence of that. And this is the most common way that the Buddha talked about emptiness. It's focusing in our attention on the absence of certain things and how the absence of certain things actually leads to a great sense of peace. It's actually pleasant when certain agitating things cease. Certain things which we know are agitating, when they cease, we're like grateful, thank goodness. And then we start to get this connection between hmm, things are agitating and they cease, that's pleasant. And we can start to refine that habit and take it deeper and deeper and go uh, more and more thoroughly into it. Sometimes even things that we love, things that are exciting, when they cease, it's kind of a relief. It's a bit like, ah, well, the good is actually peaceful. It's actually more peaceful when they cease. Have a bit of space, quietude. And paying attention to that process, that cause and effect relationship between things ceasing and um, pleasant feeling or, or a sense of freedom, then that's a key to the whole path of practice that the Buddha taught, right from the very beginning to the end. It's always you know, a process of cessation. And in that way, if we really understand that, that process and where happiness comes from, you know, if we, if we clearly start to recognize when things cease, that's pleasant, it's peaceful, it's deeply satisfying, then uh, we don't have to force ourselves to let go. I mean, it's impossible to really force ourselves, I have to let go of this. Should, I should let go of this. Mark Nunberg tells me I should let go of this. And he's always right. But I can't. It's because, you know, we haven't really looked into the cessation of it. And, and, then, and then we don't have to force ourselves. It happens naturally. It's like the mind inclines towards that which is pleasant and peaceful and, and spacious. And the mind inclines towards freedom. It just doesn't look for it in the right place. So cessation then can be an excellent model for the whole path of practice. Certainly it describes the end of the path when we look at the Four Noble Truths. Cessation. Niroda is the Third Noble Truth. So this, this is synonymous with full enlightenment. But as we see, even in a simple meditation, we can focus on moments of cessation. And it gives us that little bit of taste of the Third Noble Truth. A little hors d'oeuvres of Niroda, cessation. And the final cessation is like, mm, yeah, I start to like that taste. At first, cessation might not be initially delicious, you know, compared to exciting, interesting, new things. The cessation is like, mm, it's a bit boring, but it's a bit like Ludafisk. You, know? <laughs> you just... You start just taking little bites, place it. This, I was recently in Norway. They said, yeah, we, 
when they're young, you know, we take a little loot of his and we put it in their tongue, and, they, and uh, yeah, every Christmas, and eventually they learn to accept it. <laughs> well, cessation's even more delicious than that. <laughs> and uh, cessation is wrapped up with the end of the world. I love, I love talking about the end of the world because it sounds so kind of um, like extreme, a religious extremist. The prepare for the end of the world. <laughs> Sorry. I can't really take it seriously. But, but uh, you know, cessation is all about the end of the world. But what is the world in the eyes of the Buddha? What is the, what is the world in the eyes of an enlightened person? It's not about eschatology and ending of physical planets, societies. What is our world? You know, the Buddha said over and, ago, over and over again, our world is what we see, it's what we hear what we smell, what we taste, what we feel with our body, what we cognize with our mind. I mean, outside of that, if there's an objective reality, possibly there is. How do you tell? How would we know? So in that sense, we all live in our individual worlds. There's some agreement, like a common agreement, to call things certain things, but basically, you know, what I see and you know, what everyone else sees it's probably slightly different. In fact, we know it's different. Even you know, when, when they do tests, people notice different things in a room. People see th- different things. People literally live in different realities. And this is our world. And what is it that keeps the world going? We feed it. We feed it. It's, it's, it's only self-perpetuating if we feed it. It's like issues in our mind. If we keep feeding it with attention, if we keep paying attention to that, going back to that, getting sucked into it over and over and over, it's never going to end. It's going to keep going. But as soon as we pull our attention away, stop feeding it, then it ceases by itself. We don't have to kill it. We don't have to try to end it, force it to end. But this is what enlightenment is all about. Buddha taught the end of the world. Prepare yourself for the end of the world. Don't try to be a survivalist. Just accept. (laughs) There's a well-known quote from the Buddha. He said, I tell you, friend, that it, it isn't possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the world where one is not born, does not age, die, pass away, and reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. Yet it is just within this five or six foot long body, with its perceptions and intellect, that I declare that there is the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. 
literally how we perceive things creates our reality. Now on the same line, Nagyan Chah is talking about the world. He says, this world is the very mental state that is agitating you at this present moment. Now what is the world? The world is any preoccupation that gets you stirred up. That disturbs you right now. How is this person going to be? How is that person going to be? All of this is the world. Whatever we think up, fear of death, fear of aging, fear of illness, whatever the fear, it's all the world. Drop the world. It's just the world. That's the way the world is. If it arises in the mind, make yourself understand. The world is nothing but a preoccupation. Preoccupations obscure the mind so that it can't see itself. Now, as cessation becomes a, a lifestyle, then the we begin to see more and more places where when things cease, our life becomes so much easier and more peaceful. We really become grateful for cessation. I mean, you just look at, uh, you know, we start with cessation of bad karma, for example. Living a wholesome life, appreciation for nonviolence, for truthfulness, etc. Appreciation of the cessation of when intentions arise that might break the five precepts, we think, we just think twice. Well, that's what the five precepts are there for. It's a bit of a mirror. It's a bit of a reminder. We think, okay, well, if I let that intention cease, then what's the result? Or the cessation of stinginess, you know, holding on. This idea that, well, if I just uh, hold on to what I have and if I get enough and hold, if I just manage it right, if I just hold it right, then of course I'll be happy. I'll get everything I want. And that is so diluted. <laughs> and the more we realize that it's actually in the letting go of things, just setting things down and, and the complications and, and uh, you know, then contentment with whatever we have just starts to arise naturally. You realize, well, oh, actually, just living simply with what I have is fine. I don't need to, the next project, the next this, the next that. We start to rejoice in generosity. I mean, this is one of the foundations of Buddhist practice in every tradition. Like giving, the joy of giving, because it creates this habit of, you know, not holding tight to what we identify with. In the end, you know, we have to give up very refined things. We're enlightened by what we can start, we can practice just by giving up some time for people. You know, we, we, we're holding on to our time. 
because it's very precious. We don't have much of it. When we give that up, it's like a cessation of attachment, cessation of a certain tension. And uh, a lot of joy can come from that. watching this relationship between the arising of craving and the cessation of craving, craving. Because when craving ceases, what's left? Yeah. Focusing on the cessation, it's like, yeah, actually, I didn't need that in the first place. Yeah, wisdom arises. Uh, craving is just, it goes hand in hand with delusion. There's kind of a blind craving, or it's based on a selfish craving, wanting to get something. You know, it's all about beginning things, starting things, doing things, controlling things, having things, wanting things, amassing things. But that is inherently stressful. So just looking at how things cease, it's like, well, my craving actually ceases rather than me being a slave to it, rather than being forced to follow, then what's the result? It's a peace, contentment. So this whole world of gaining and acquiring and doing and controlling is the exact opposite of cessation. It's wonderful to have a mind which is this, even for a while, free of worry about all that. Just allowing the worry to cease. Now, Ajahn Chah talked about the world and the affairs of the world. He said, are never peaceful. Whatever fantasies we have, you know, if we're rich, you know, they're not peaceful. If we're poor, they're not peaceful. If we're adults, they're not peaceful. If we're children, they're not peaceful. If people lack education, they're not peaceful. If people are educated, they're not peaceful. All these affairs are not peaceful. That's just the way things are. That's why poor people suffer, rich people suffer, children suffer, adults suffer, old people suffer, the sufferings of old people. Children suffer the, suffer the sufferings of children. Rich, poor, they're all suffering. Another area that is very good to look at cessation in relation to our own inner peace is the area of views, and attachment to views and opinions. And you ever, I don't know if you ever meet people who are attached to their views and opinions. 
Maybe it just doesn't happen in Minneapolis. <laughs> but in other places in the world, it's a big cause of suffering. <laughs> you know, this, this idea that what we perceive is right. If we perceive it, therefore it must be right, because it's reality. We perceive it that way. We wouldn't intentionally... Uh, we wouldn't intentionally make, you know, hold a false belief. Again, it's based on this uh, delusion that we really don't see this connection, that our world is what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and cognize. And everyone else's world is what they see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and cognize. So we're literally perceiving different realities. And so people come to opposite conclusions. Intelligent, thoughtful, compassionate people can come to opposite conclusions. How can that be? Certainly the other person must be wrong. It's obvious. What's wrong with them? But, you know, In this sense, the attachment is based on this ignorance of, well, if I perceive things a certain way, then that's reality. Well, it's not necessarily the case. What we perceive is valid for us. What other people perceive as valid for them. Now, there may be an objective reality, and certainly sometimes we don't have enough information. and our views change, obviously, based on the information uh, that we have and the experience we have. But even if everyone has the same amount of experience and knowledge, we can come to opposite conclusions. So then what? And how are we going to live in harmony? And how do we live in harmony with our friends, our family? It's sad that you know, the only way people can live in harmony at family gatherings is not to talk about religion and politics. <laughs> Two of the most interesting things in the world. We're not allowed to talk about it. Don't bring that up. Well, how am I not supposed to talk about religion? I'm a Buddhist monk. <laughs> well, it's just a way of life. It's not but, but my way of life is political. Oh. <laughs> With views and opinions, I'm going to talk about a lot more about this tomorrow. But it's interesting to see what do we get out of it. You know, when we hold a view and we keep going to it, you know, we have this opinion or belief, and uh, what is it that we're getting out of it? We can come up with lots of supportive uh, reasons for something, but beyond that or below that or behind that, what are we getting out of it? It's kind of reinforcing the sense of me, I'm right, me, me, 
me. <laughs> right? And so even if, even if we might change our opinion at some time, we just grab onto a new opinion. It's me, me. Because <laughs> it reinforces that sense of self and somehow that gives a delusion of security. But it doesn't really give security. I mean, the Buddha did ta- teach right view. No blatefold path begins with right view. But even if we were attached to that conventional right view, if we were practicing the totality of the Noble Eightfold Path, then we would overcome that attachment. So it doesn't mean not having views, but it means how we hold them. How we hold the view is equally more important than the actual views that we have. And really, we probably have enough views that we could allow a few of them to cease. Just allow a few of them to cease, maybe 50%. And just notice how much more peaceful life is going to be. Say, what do you think about, um, you know, oh, what do you think about Edward Snowden? What do you think about this politician? Is Obama doing a good job or not? I accept just the way it is. It doesn't mean being stupid. (laughs) But (laughs) kind of like the fool on the hill. No opinions. But there's a uh, there's a certain amount of after a while you just realize it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Whatever. I can have an opinion, but so what? <laughs> and, uh, what? And for what? It's just there to kind of reinforce my sense of a certain perception of the world that gives me a certain security in relationship to the external reality and perceptions and maybe other people expect me to have a view and opinion on something which uh, is a way of reinforcing my sense of self and it's all about you know, expressing my ego. It comes right down to it. So when we sacrifice a few of our opinions or at least a few of our attachments to those opinions, say, yeah, I believe this, but I'm open. You know, so, yeah, this is how I see it right now, but I might be wrong. It opens up a lot of spaciousness in the mind. It's like, ah, there's a lot of cessation of attachment happening. And when that cessation of attachment to views begins to happen, then it's a lot easier just to be at peace with whatever happens. Now, when we really start to refine meditation, then we can take this, you know, this, this cessation of thoughts to greater degrees. Like in the meditation. Initially, it may seem like thoughts are just continuous. You know, it's just one mass of thoughts intertwined, one after the other. But if we start to look closely, you know, you get awareness like a little wedge in between the cessation of one thought and the beginning of the other, and and you realize there's some space there. And whatever we place our attention on, 
will grow mentally. So if we place our attention on issues, it's going to be self-perpetuating. There's no end. If we place our attention on space, then that's going to grow. Then that becomes a habit, especially when we start to to uh, recognize that space, spaciousness of mind, quietude of mind, is actually pleasant, because the mind's always looking for what's pleasant. And if it can actually derive a sense of contentment just from paying attention to spaciousness, now that's a good deal. It's free. First of all, it's free. And uh, it's available any time. So then it starts to become more and more of a, a way of life. Not just when we're meditating. You know, we start to get that sense of quietude when we're meditating and when there's external silence and being able to bring that in. But then, you know, when we get up and transition, when we do the next thing, when we're uh, walking to our car, driving our car, when we're doing the dishes, when we're taking a shower, right? when we're eating, there's no end of opportunities where we can develop this this spaciousness or this quietude because it's there all the time. Even if we're in the midst of very busy circumstances, behind that or around that, within that, there is space. Right? I mean, there's a lot of people in this room, but mostly it's space. Even when this room is full, it's not really full. It's there's space. There's more space than people. So if I pay, if I just pay attention to the spacious aspect of it, it's a different perception. Or even if there's thinking happening in my mind, still most of the mental space in my mind is quiet. There's, there's more silence in my mind than thought, even when I'm in the process of thinking. So if I notice that, if I keep my attention on that, then that will continue to grow, and it will continue to reinforce that inclination towards cessation. You know? And we need to do that, because the world is, is always trying to pull us back into arising. Hey, pay attention to arising. It's like billboards. Really, it's just billboards. Trying to get our attention. Hey, arising, arising. They're like, no, no. Cessation. Cessation. And when we really start to develop meditation, when we, when we talk about samadhi or samatha, which are basically the same thing, the mind going calm. How does that happen? I mean, what is Samadhi, it's, it's essentially a process of gradual cessation. Things gradually cease. And then what's left is what we call samadhi, but really that's, that's just a term for all the things which have disappeared. And then what's left is this radiant spaciousness. But with developing the, the samadhi, I mean, we're, we're calming the body, you know? Calming the body is like a cessation of uh, agitation. Calming our speech. We calm our external speech. When the quantity of words 
or the intensity behind the words begins to cease somewhat, then the echoes of those conversations lead to peace in the mind. Another thing to keep in mind when you're meditating is watching the cessation of boredom. So if you're feeling like, when's he going to ring that bell? <laughs> I've got things to do. This is so boring. Well, it's not always boring. And what is boring? Okay, boring is just a slight lack of contentment with whatever's happening in the present moment. Subtle discontent. Well, if I just let go of that, a wish for something different, then what happens is suddenly it's not boring anymore. Like, oh, it's... Call it interesting or whatever, but it's not boring anymore. Every moment's new. Wow. Perfectly content. And then gradually... For example, you know, as the mind calms down, physical sensations in the body begin to cease. When you really start to be concentrated and relaxed, you can't feel your knees, you can't feel your back, you can't feel anything in your body. Maybe you're just focusing on the sensations of the breath coming in. Or maybe by that time you can only uh, be aware of the breath at the tip of the nose. Everything else has ceased. And for that period of time, that is our world. And there's one, one of the defining qualities of samadhi is that it's full of happiness, pleasure, rapture. It's wonderful. It's kind of what people are looking for externally. But why is it? It's not something that we've really developed. We talk about developing samadhi as if it's, you know, it is a skill in a sense. But the result is not something that we've developed. The result is simply the cessation of all this other stuff. It's the cessation of angry thoughts. Cessation of worries about the future. It's the cessation of, uh, you know, just memories and memories, cessation of agitation, cessation, cessation of all that, all those issues, they all cease, and then, and then what's left? So then cessation really starts to look good. Like, wow, you know, they, the Buddha called the mind unified in samadhi is like a, a bit of a foretaste of enlightenment. It's like, wow, if this is just the, the, the say, the pleasure or the, or the sense of inner freedom that comes from just a bit of cessa- cessation, you know, when the five hindrances cease, just imagine, you know, when we really start to let go of things, when big things start to cease. And then that helped motivate us. 
start to get a, a not a theoretical appreciation of cessation, but you know, you start to, to feel it in your gut. Like, yeah, when things cease, that's peaceful. Lumpa Cha said, the more tired you feel, the more refined you have to keep focusing in, on in, every time in meditation. Why? So that you can contend with pain. Focus the mind in at that point and then keep the mind with the breath. Budo, Budo. Let go of everything outside. Don't get fastened on your children. Don't get fastened on your grandchildren. Don't get fastened on anything at all. Just let go. Let the mind be one. Gather the mind into one. Watch the breath. Focus on the breath. Gather the mind at the breath. Be aware of the breath. You don't have to be aware of anything else. Keep making your awareness more and more refined until it feels very small, but extremely awake. The pains that have arisen will gradually go calm. We get acquainted, acquainted with coarse breathing. We get acquainted with refined breathing. As the breathing gets more and more refined, we watch it off. It gets smaller and smaller. But we make our mind more and more awake. We keep watching the breath and get more and more refined until there's no more breath. It's just awareness, wide awake. This is called meeting with the Buddha. We stay aware, awake. That is what Bhutto means. What's aware, awake, serene. When that's the case, we're living with the Buddha. We've met with awareness. We've met with brightness. We don't send the mind anywhere else. It gathers in here. We've reached the Buddha. Even though he's already passed away, that was just the body. The real Buddha is awareness that's serene and bright. When you meet with this, that's all you have to know. Let everything gather right here. The Buddha looked at things in line with their conditions, that they simply have to be that way. So we let them go. We let them be. Take your awareness as your refuge. Meditate on the word Uto. Uto. Even though you're really tired, put your mind with the breath. Take a good long out breath. Take a good long in breath. Take another good long out breath. Focus your mind again if you wander off. Focus on the breath. Uto. Uto. Let go of everything, leaving just this singular awareness. But don't get deluded, okay? Don't, don't, don't lose track. If a vision or a voice arises in the mind, let it go. Leave it be. You don't need to take hold of anything at all. Just take hold of the awareness. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the past. Stay right here. Ultimately, you get so that you can't say that you're going forward and you can't say that you're going back. 
You can't say that you're staying in place. There's nothing to be attached to. Why? Because there's no self there. There's no you. No yours. It's all gone. So this is the Buddha's teaching. He tells us to be all gone in this way. He doesn't have us grab hold of anything. He has us be aware like this. Aware and letting go. This is your duty right now. Yours alone. Try to enter into the Dhamma in this way. This is the path for gaining release from the round of wandering on. When the mind starts to go more calm, one of the reasons that it's peaceful is because we're not preoccupied with ourself. What is it that stirs up the mind? Thoughts about me. Thoughts about me and my relationship with others, others' opinions of me, what I need to do, my responsibilities. When that ceases, when the mind is, it has a moment of, of quietude, then really pay attention to everything that has ceased. What has ceased? And in a big way, our sense of self has ceased temporarily. You know, our self is not getting in the way. And that's incredibly peaceful. And that's important to pay attention to. If we don't pay attention to it, even if we have moments of samadhi, uh, some good meditations, peaceful meditations, They'll just pass by as experiences. So when the mind does go peaceful, really pay attention. What has ceased? What, what's not there? And when that isn't there, how wonderful it is. So a lot of cessation takes place in developing samadhi. But when it really kicks in is when we start to use that power of samadhi, that focused energy, that, that clarity of mind to develop insight. One of the classic areas of developing insight then in the forest tradition is to, is to start to look at the cessation of our body. Start to look at cessation with our body. Constantly ceasing. But one day it's really going to cease, big time. It's obvious, but it's not so obvious. Well, it's obvious, but like many things, we're able to divert our attention away from the cessation aspect of our body. Just look at the arising, the changing. Oh, it's arising. I guess the word death comes from the old English Deo, something like that, which comes from the uh, proto-European uh, Indo language. Um, they translated it, transliterated it as D-H-E-U, the word that it came from, which I think many Americans would pronounce as duh. <laughs> 
So, when it comes to death, it's duh. <laughs> I mean, death is a no-brainer, right? But, but really going to this very simple aspect of cessation and, and just inclining the mind towards it and just noticing what comes up. It's powerful. What comes up? Just, okay, do we know we're going to die? What is death? It's just, what is death? It's just cessation of what? physical body, our awareness, what, you know, what is it that actually ceases when we die, as far as we understand? That can bring up a lot. But I don't want to, I don't want that to cease. <laughs> Fine. You can not want it to cease. But it's going to cease anyways. <laughs> so you might as well, you, we have a choice. We always have a choice, you know. The Buddha gives us a choice. You can hold on, or you can let go. <laughs> and uh, an experiment. He, he didn't ask people to believe him blindly. He said, go ahead, experiment. Holding on, what does that feel like? Holding on, clinging to life. Clinging to the body. What does that feel like? Letting go of an identification with the body. What does that feel like? Easy to say, but it's not that easy to do. Identification. When we talk about real powerful cessation is when we start to, uh, the identification with the body starts to cease. You know, when I look down at my arm, as, as much as I've done contemplation of death and body contemplation and you know, visualize taking the body apart, putting it back together, and visualize myself as skeletons and meditation. Still, if I look at my arm, the immediate reaction is my arm. Identify with it. It's like the, the identification goes so deeply. But still, I can catch myself, and, you know, I, uh, I don't necessarily hold to that perception very tightly. And when fear of death comes up, then what is it that we're afraid of? Fear of cessation. If we, if we start to see the positive relationship between cessation and pleasant feelings, happiness, peace in smaller areas, then when it comes to our own death, we can kind of get a sense of, well, maybe this cessation could be okay too. You don't have to die to rest in peace. You rest in rest in peace beforehand. <laughs> Another quote about cessation in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Buddha says. This was an occasion when the Venerable Ananda approached the Buddha and asked him, 
said, Venerable Sir, it is said, the world, the world. In what way, Venerable Sir, is it said, the world? Basically, he's saying, well, they said the world, well, what is the world? Whatever is subject to disintegration, Ananda, is called the world in the noble one's discipline. And what is subject to disintegration? The I, Ananda, is subject to disintegration. Forms, or what we see, things that we see, are subject to disintegration. I, consciousness. If we, if we, if we don't have consciousness, then we're not going to see something. Well, that's subject to dis disintegration. I, contact. Basically, the awareness that we're seeing is subject to disintegration. Whatever feelings, the reactions that we have from seeing, subject to disintegration. And on with the ear, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and especially the mind. Whatever we, we uh, experience mentally, subject to disintegration. And this is what's called the world in, in the Noble One's discipline. It's disintegrating because, therefore, it's called the world. Even the cessation of beauty and pleasure. This is my... Even the cessation of beauty and pleasure, if there's no lingering attachment, is experienced as something even more beautiful. So real Dharma practice always goes in the opposite direction of the world. The Buddha said this over and over again. All the great teachers say the same thing. Of course, we're living within the world, but practicing Dhamma goes in the opposite direction as a worldly way of relating to the world. In terms of accumulation, Dhamma teaches us to let go. It's a cessation of accumulation. In terms of craving, instead of Wanting more. It's all about letting go of that. Letting go of that wanting. Letting them cease. When it comes to craving for existence, it's all about letting that cessation come to pass. As a theme for developing insight, just watching the cessation of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching over and over again, paying attention to that, how that falls away, will, uh, kind of on a, on a deep level, change how we relate to life. Like I said, we can't force ourselves to let go of things. But what we can do is just to start paying attention to certain aspects of reality that we normally don't look at. And we start to look at how things cease, 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 cease over and over again. And then automatically, without trying, our, line, our lives start to incline towards enlightenment, start to incline towards um, all these wonderful qualities of the Dhamma. When cessation really starts to go deep, 
not just about um, letting go of craving for beautiful sights, nice sounds, etc. It's about what we call the craving for existence and craving for non-existence. So the craving for existence is its a bit like the will to survive, a wish just to continue on experiencing things. It's that deep, this perpetuation of existence. Uh, the sense of self is based on getting new sights. It's based on getting new sounds. It's based on experiencing new things all the time. The sense of self is based on our arising. Whereas the undoing of the delusion around the sense of self is based on cessation. Cessation of everything. And the desire to continue to exist is one of the, the uh, three root desires. Desire for sensuality, bhavatana is desire for existence, and then we bhavatana is desire for non-existence. So a desire for non-existence doesn't mean a wish to um, commit suicide, but it's based on uh, it's based on an accurate view that endless birth, rebirth, or endless experience in and of itself is tiring. That there's something better than that. We call the end of samsara, and yet. You, you can't realize it by desiring it. No matter how much you want to say, may, may my craving cease. May my craving cease. May I be liberated. I will be liberated. <laughs> it just doesn't work. That's not the cause for liberation to happen. It just reinforces that sense of self. So it's called vipavatana. So, Bhavatana is not like a craving to become a certain type of person with a certain status or praise from other people or, or getting one's pleasure. That's all part of more ordinary craving. But even if things are, are painful, even if things are painful, often there's, there's still a wish to continue, a very deep-seated wish to continue to exist in some way. One of the big aspects of cessation that the Buddha taught is the um, cessation of the twelvefold dependent origination, which I don't think I'm going to go into tonight in detail, because, because there's a lot there. But essentially, when, when ignorance ceases, the whole process of enlightenment comes down to when ignorance ceases, it creates this domino effect, this positive domino effect. With the fading away and cessation of ignorance comes cessation of volitional formations. When that ceases, then the cessation of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness, then on and on, name and form, body and mind, etc. And the end result is the cessation of all dukkha, or suffering. And this is what the Buddha realized underneath the Bodhi tree in the third watch of the night. And when he described his own enlightenment, he talked about dependent origination, and he reflected, you know, 
where does the trouble in the world come from? Where does the pain, the displeasure, the suffering, everything that we, everything that we do not wish for? Where is it? What's the origin of that? And he just worked it back. You know, because of this. That, why is that? Because of that. And then he reflected, well then, what's the key to undoing it all? How do, you know, how do we free ourselves from this knot? And uh, the answer was cessation. We go back to the root. Ignorance. When ignorance is replaced by wisdom, then it creates this positive domino effect of other things ceasing. Other things ceasing, ceasing, ceasing. Until finally, suffering is... Uh, Suffering ceases, even in its most subtle form, and this is really what the path is all about. So when you get a sense of this, you start to it's kind of turn away from the world. Not in a not in a way of being disgusted with it at all. It's more like it uh, just opens up a, whole, uh, a different way of relating to the world while being in the world. And uh, you say that that beauty, that beauty of cessation, which is there all the time starts to become more and more evident. I want to end with another quote of the Buddha. It said, The end of the world is not to be reached by traveling. And it's not without reaching the end of the world that there's a release from suffering and stress. So truly, the wise one an expert in regard to the world, a knower of the end of the world, having fulfilled the spiritual life, calmed, knowing the end of the world, does not long for this world or any other. So this is the end. My only friend, the end. Jim Morrison was enlightened. Is he saying about the end? My only friend, the end. Maybe he was attached to the end. I think he was attached to quite a few things. Anyway, so I offer this for your reflection this evening. And uh, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to ask. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would like to ask on this. Um, I was with my father last 
got uh, 48 hours that you have to have seek to become conscious periodically from around really disappointed that I think that he was still there you know, he would say um, I feel that sometimes too. <laughs> I wake up in the morning. Everything's still the same. I think, you know, you decide, you know, some time ago that there was too much suffering to endure anymore. You know, I And, you know, in the end, very deliberately, is, I think, that you can So do you think he came to a place of acceptance? Or was just being fed up? Or a combination? I think it was a combination. I certainly yeah. I certainly think that it came to a place of cessation. Of, you know, acceptance and cessation. Seeing it as desire. Yeah. Whether that was one of the wanting to realize the greater, whether it was just one of yeah, and sometimes it takes that, it takes kind of being pushed to our limit to be, that we are forced to let go, you know, we just can't take it anymore, it's just not worth holding on anymore, and, uh, you know, often we can be pretty stubborn in our attachments, and then oh, it's only when it really starts to hurt that we can say, okay, I'll let go of that. And death is uh, a great teacher because, you know, we have to let go. It forces us to recognize this. I mean, we have to let go or, or we die struggling, which is unfortunate. But some people don't let go. If you could repeat what you read, that uh, quote from Rajan Shah, you said, What is the wealth that is anything that's agitating you at this moment? That's it. <laughs> yeah. The world is the very mental state that is agitating you at this present moment. When you first said that, it really struck me as true. You know, like I laughed for a moment, and it really has, and it really just started settling in. I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. See you. Yeah. So, first, thank you. Um, I noticed 
that in my practice, actually particularly when I'm uh, practicing somebody, I'll be sitting for another, uh, for a while, maybe two years ago, we'll sit, and I'll get really attached to, uh, to, to the bliss or attached to the, the cessation, attached to the no suffering. And so you touched on it um, some, Right, because even attachment to the pleasure of samadhi, you can't force yourself not to be attached. But what you can do is remind yourself, now, if this attachment ceases, samadhi will actually go deeper. And that's, that's what's holding us back from, from even more profound states of samadhi. Because as profound as it, as it feels, there's a lot more potential there. So sometimes we, when we discover something new and pleasurable, we forget Dhamma. <laughs> you know, we forget the basic principles, which is totally normal. And it's like, oh, right. Just let go, and it'll be even more peaceful. Again, if you pay attention to why the samadhi is pleasant at any particular point, then the reason it's pleasant is because a lot has ceased. And then it's, it's more difficult to get attached to things not being there. When we have a certain concept on, about something, um, when we see it more as something rather than a lack of disturbing qualities, then it, at least for myself, it feels like it's easier to get attached to that. But when I just see that there's this pleasantness due to the lack of all the agitating thoughts, worries, concerns, um, burdens, etc., that I place upon myself, you know, when those temporarily are dropped, then the result is is this. So then, instead of getting attached to that the pleasantness that's a result, I tend to focus on on the you know noticing why why it's there. It's there because of the cessation of all of these other qualities, which then reinforces the um, good habit of not picking them up again. Really, you know, we can never force a samadhi to go deeper. Especially at certain stages, the only thing we can do is just to be perfectly content with the way it is. And even if you do get attached, don't worry about it too much. Because, you know, as long as we're practicing correctly, we'll overcome that. You know, it's natural that, you know, we're, we'll kind of get attached to one thing and then we discover something a bit better and we let go of that. And even Dhamma practice works in that way. You know, when we start to discover something a bit more profound, a bit more satisfying, a bit more deep, deeply pleasurable, then we can let go, well, automatically, you know, the attachment to 
earlier states of samadhi or whatever are let go of. But still, the mind's very tricky, you know, so when, uh, it's easy to crave for past states of mind. But unfortunately, the craving, you know, like like craving for enlightenment, you know, it's not, that's not the direct cause for it to go. You know, even craving for enlightenment is actually the only craving that the Buddha praised. That's not the direct cause for enlightenment, but it will, it's a craving that will overcome itself as we practice correctly. So samadhi's a bit like that as well. Even if you get attached, don't worry. If you keep practicing, then it's a, um, it, will, it will be overcome by itself through the development of wisdom. How do you practice cessation in the midst of a busy life? This is something I've really had to learn. The first many years of my monastic life, I mean, it was busy in the sense that I had to sew my own robes and learn how to be a proper monk and, and um, you know, do things in the monastery. But basically, I could focus on cessation a lot. And the whole supportive environment uh, was conducive to being able to focus on cessation, cessation, cessation. But then uh, about eight years ago, suddenly I became an abbot. And then uh, suddenly I had to start focusing on arising. It was part of my my duties was, okay, now I have, we have to build things. You know, even though as, as they were building, they were already starting to fall apart. You know, it was part of maintenance. <laughs> I sh- still, it was like planting. Every time I would plant something, then you know, I would be focusing on the arising, the newness, creation. And that's exhausting. Always focusing on doing, doing new things, creating things, even if they're good things, even if they're wonderful things, useful things, beneficial things, things that other people appreciate, things that uh, we think are actually good for the world. Still, always when we're focusing on the arising, the arising, the creation, it's tiring. It's tiring for the mind. So then I had to realize, wait a minute, I have to somehow practice cessation within all of that arising. And then that combination of being engaged in the world and, and not being fooled by the world started to become more deep, more practical, more sustainable. Not being fooled by the world, thinking that once I build, once I finish this building project, then everything will be fine. 
once once this situation is cleared up, everything will be fine. I'll never have to worry again. Once I plant these trees, then my work will be finished. Of course it's not finished. Then you have to prune the trees and protect them. And, you know, it's just it's never ending. Anytime we have an idea, once I just sort out this situation and get this relationship right, and then this... And then everything will be fine, and I mean, not that of course we think we're going to live happily ever after, but you know, there's some sort of part of our mind which sort of thinks like, once I get this sorted, everything will be fine. Right? But it's never like that, <laughs> because uh, no matter, even if we do something wonderful, it comes to completion immediately. It starts to have its own problems. And nothing's ever, very rarely are things simple and straightforward, except in the architect's plans <laughs> and the explanation by the project manager. <laughs> no problem. Easy, straightforward. And, uh, but the reality always tends to be more complicated, and even once it's finished, as soon as it's finished, even before it's finished, it starts to fall apart. So that's, that's a good way not to be sucked into the world, you see. No matter how much good we do in the world, no matter how much positive benefit or expression of our creativity, immediately it starts to disappear. So if we base our sense of self, self-worth, on what we are creating, then it's not stable, it's not secure, it's flimsy. So then we start to look for, well, what can, what is secure? You know, what is real security? And then we start to maybe not, not be fooled or sucked into the world so much. Any time for one more? Comment or question for Ajahn? Um, so does consciousness of mindfulness also receive something that Yeah, I ran out of time. <laughs> does consciousness then cease at the point of death? You're talking about death. Yes. But I'll extend that question to the death of a fully enlightened person. So this is where it gets very interesting. Um, now certainly at the point of physical death, whether we have uh, personal experience and evidence or not, certainly it seems pretty clear in the oldest text that the, that the Buddha uh, said that this is just merely a physical change, that the, uh, the bhava tanha, the desire for continue to exist, exist, is so strong that that aspect of consciousness, that rebirth consciousness, then um, will take that mental momentum from one life, you know, so that even when the physical matter from one life goes back to the elements, back to the earth and the water, then uh, that mental momentum is still so strong 
that it will seek out new physical matter. And that's what we call rebirth. So in that sense, consciousness never ceases. Body may cease, but consciousness and um, in seed form, all the aspects of our current existence can be carried forward. Now what's where cessation really becomes interesting is how did the Buddha define enlightenment? He said it's the cessation of the five khandhas. You know, the five khandhas is another term for um, everything that we consider ourselves. You know, body, uh, feelings, perceptions, or memories, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. Which is just a, a way of categorizing everything in our everything that it means to be human. And the Buddha says, all that ceases. If you're fully enlightened, and when you pass away, all that ceases. So then, what's left? And I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> because even the Buddha didn't answer that. Because all we have to conceive, all, we, all the tools we have for conceiving are within these five khandhas. So to try to imagine, conceive, conceptualize something outside of the five khandhas is, is impossible. So anything that the Buddha would say to describe that, we would misunderstand, and possibly that might actually make it more difficult to practice if we had you know, misunderstandings of what the goal was. So that's where cessation really kicks in. (laughs) Now, if you hear that at first, you think of cessation of five khandhas. Well, it doesn't sound so great. I kind of like going to the park. But if we start to get a sense of, of the relationship between things ceasing and pleasure, you know, even in the beginning stages of samadhi, it becomes really obvious when agitating things cease in the mind, the result is spaciousness and peace, and and then that process keeps deepening and deepening and expanding, then by, you know, uh, we can imagine that with the full cessation of the five khandhas, and that would be the highest happiness, which is how the Buddha described enlightenment. This is about as far as he would go and describing it. He said it is the supreme happiness. Okay, I think the question time has come to cessation. <laughs> <laughs> That's our equivalent of sadhu, this is the modern adaptation as Buddhism comes to the West. <laughs> yeah, from a cell phone. <laughs> All right, good. I'm with it. Thank you so much, Ajahn, for being here. And if you'd like to hear more, um, most of Ajahn's talks from the last several years of his course retreat are on the website. You just need to scroll back to July of last year and previous Julys, and you'll see the five, six, or whatever talks, and 
question and answers from those forest retreats are all up on our website. And Ajahn also has a really good website, the Vimuti, is it just Vimuti.org or? Dot .nz. Dot .nz. Dot .org dot .nz? Yeah, so Vimuti. But if you just Google Ajahn Chattako, you'll get that as well. And there's uh, a lot of good teachings and talks at uh, that website of the monastery in, in New Zealand. And if you'd like to support his Dharma life and uh, the hermitage he has in California and He'll be on retreat up in the North Woods for the Rains Retreat through, uh, towards the end of October. Uh, you can leave a donation. We use those donations to fly Ajahn out from California when he's uh, visiting the monastery there and his hermitage there and uh, also take care of him and also offer funds so he can continue that those projects that he's involved in uh, to support the Dharma practice here in the West. So you can leave a donation in the donation bowl if you'd like for that. And also there's plenty of space for the workshop tomorrow, 9.30 to 4 p.m. Ajahn's teaching a workshop on views, belief, tolerance, and bhikkhuni ordination. Some of you may not know, but there's been a lot of discussion around the full ordination of females in the Theravada tradition and the Thai forest tradition. And... He's using that as an example. I mean, there are many examples of how we relate to our views and whether or not we tolerate others' views. And clearly, this is a place of a lot of suffering. So I'm looking forward to that discussion and teaching tomorrow. And uh, you can join us. It starts at 9.30 tomorrow for that. And bring a back lunch. And also, we'll be serving Ajahn lunch. So if you want to bring some food to put out for Ajahn's meal, that's the tradition in, for Buddhist monks and nuns that... Uh, let people feed the monks. They can't hold food overnight, so if nobody offers them any food, they don't eat. That's really wonderful. Symbiotic relationship. <laughs> Gives us some yes, power. It is really, really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it makes them willing to show up and teach. <laughs> it is literally the carrot. <laughs> So please join us for that tomorrow. <laughs> and a number of other good programs coming up. You can check out the newsletter if you haven't yet. Just pick one up on your way out. Any other announcements for people? Becca, are we all set with what we need for the retreat? Yes. And I think, Evelyn, you're here too. Do we need any more food for the retreat? Okay, so we're all set for that retreat. And do we want people to register for the retreat, or we have enough of a waiting list? We have a fairly short waiting list, so register if there's any last cancellations. And it's also nice just to go to the website and look at the information about the course retreat, because even if it doesn't make sense, obviously it's short notice now, but you might be interested in future summers to do that forest retreat. So you can, there's a poster up on the bulletin board, you get the website, or just go to our website, and if you look at a residential retreat, you'll see the information about the forest retreat, the link for that. And then, even if people aren't able to do the retreat, I will be staying on at that cabin until uh, third week in October. And for the last month or so, uh, there's opportunity for people who want to come up and join me for periods of time uh, as a, a steward um, with the... It's a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> you get... A wonderful lake cabin for free, and 
uh, you take responsibility for feeding only one monk. <laughs> Jerry will be uh, collecting the names and giving you more information about that. But in the meantime, you can just send, if you're interested in going up, if you're a woman, you need to go up with another man. Um, but if you're interested in doing that, then send something, some information to the center. We'll connect you with Jerry Sakara, who's organizing that schedule for Ajahn's last month. He's going to be taken care of for the first two months by the owner of the cabin, John Tendal, who's been sponsoring these retreats for the last number of years, really generously offering his lakeside cabin and the great north woods to the community to practice with Ajahn. Thanks again, Ajahn. Look forward to tomorrow and next year. <laughs> I thought it ceases. <laughs> oh, good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.